So we're going to do a little thought experiment to start today. I want you to imagine that you have a time machine, right? For those of you that don't like history class, that's a problem. <laughs> but that's a flaw, and you all need to get over that, <laughs> okay? So we're, we're going to imagine that we have the ability to bring someone into the future from the past. So we go back and we grab a, a, a lady who lives in 1800. And we bring her to the future, okay? She's wearing her, her lather elaborate dress, maybe a bustle. She's dressed like a lady of some means from the 1800s. And you bring her to your house. What is she going to be most amazed by? Like, what is that thing that she's going to go, oh my gosh, what is that? That's awesome. Now, the cars, yeah, maybe, right? But she kind of has a comparable. They have horses and buggies and wagons, so they're just like, oh, it's a wagon that moves itself. Airplanes, oh yeah, she'd probably go, that's crazy. But I think the thing that would most shock her would be electricity. We're thinking about it, right? The, the idea that you can have light all day and leave them on so parents have to go around and turn them off. All right? That you can have heat without open flame. And this is an amazing one that some of us take for granted. You can cool your house down. That's why the South didn't get settled for a very long time with as big a cities as the North because you can't cool those places down. But I think where she would even more be amazed is she would be amazed that she can cook without an open flame. Because here's the thing, I don't, this is probably the only part of the sermon that you're all going to remember, just so you know. Number one killer of women in 1800, not childbirth, not war, not diseases, it was catching on fire while cooking and dying. It's true. They didn't have the video, you know, the stop, drop, and roll, right? Remember, we, we learned that, in, at least I learned that in elementary. Anyway. So th this is just a different world for her. So let's say you're talking to her, and she's already amazed. You know, cooking dinner is not life-threatening anymore, right? Maybe trying to get children to eat it is life-threatening. But you can see that she's going, well, how does this all work? And you explained to her, we have, we have these plugs that you plug stuff into. And so she goes over, and she puts her hands on the wall and goes, wow, this wall is powerful. And you're like, no, no, you don't understand. It actually, let's go outside. You take her outside, and you go, see these power lines? She goes, wow, those power lines are powerful. And you're like, well, not exactly. These power lines are connected to something amazing down the way, and this is where she would understand, right? You'd say, there's this river, this gigantic river called the Columbia, it's a roaring, raging river that we have dammed up and we make power from the power of the river. And she goes, oh, okay. So you're harnessing that power and it's making this electricity that now allows you to do all these magical things in her mind. I mean, this traveler wouldn't understand that Bonneville Dam by itself makes enough power to power houses 900,000 of them, that all the dams on the Columbia River can power 32.4 million houses. Like she doesn't even grasp, I don't know that we grasp how powerful 
the river is that we've tapped into. And that's not including all the other sources of electricity that we have. But it's pretty amazing. And so you send this little old lady, really old, she was in the 1800s, send her back in time, and you start thinking, hey, we've got, you know, this is a pretty powerful house. We need to upgrade some of our appliances. You know what? We need to get some bigger appliances in this house. Like, our house has got air conditioning, but I want real air conditioning. So you get one of those big, huge ones, like, like Ray has down at, down at Pietro's that, that cools a whole building. You're like, I'm going to power my house with that. Or you're like, I've always wanted to break stuff. I want a, I want a compressor that can shrink down cars and smush them down to little blocks. Or I want an industrial-sized boiler in our house so it's nice and warm, 100 degrees every day. And you put one of these big items in your house, and you go and you plug it in the wall, and what happens? Your electricity goes away. Well, why? You have power, right? You don't have enough power to run something that big. You don't have enough power to be able to make that huge thing, crushing cars, or making your house so cold you can see your breath, or so warm that it's like a sauna, and so on and so forth. You don't have enough power because you're not tapped into the power sufficiently. So today, what we're going to look at is we're going to look at what the Bible says about tapping into that power, into the power of the God who made the universe. You thought the Columbia was powerful? The God of the universe is infinitely more powerful. So today, Jesus is going to deal with his disciples and say, here's how you tap in. And it's this magical power line known as faith. And by not tapping into me, you are not utilizing the power that he has. So God moves powerfully when we have faith in Christ is our big idea. So where have we been? Last week, we were on the mountaintop with Jesus. He's up there for the transfiguration. This is when Jesus shows what he's actually like to his three most inner circle of disciples. He comes down. As he's coming down the hill, much like Moses, when Moses is up getting the Ten Commandments, and as he's walking down the hill, he starts to hear a ruckus. And he goes, is that a war? Is that a battle? No, it's the Israelites worshiping a pagan god. And so as he comes down, meanwhile, in the valley bad things are happening. Well, bad things necessarily aren't happening here, but something is happening. The other nine disciples are going about their business, and they have this interaction with this father. They try to heal his son. So parallel passages are in Mark 9 and Luke 9. You can read them on your own, but let's look at verse 14. This is the worshiping father. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him, kneeling before him, said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. So the first thing we see is the man comes down and kneels before Jesus. He calls him Lord, and then he says, have mercy on my son. And what he's saying is, heal my son. This is a form of worship. Calling out to him Lord instead of teacher or rabbi or just by name is elevating Jesus to above where most of the crowd thinks he is. There's a definite respect for this Jesus. It says in our translations, he has seizures. The word there is moonstruck. This is a Greek word called selina enzomai. It comes from the Greek word selene, 
which is a nice lady's name, it means the goddess of the moon. So this is a, a, an idea that the moon controls people's, you know, being able to connect with reality. The Latin version of this is the word lunatic. Luna being moon, tick being that it's coming from the moon. This is someone's not in their right mind. Well, lunatic is not a word we use very often anymore. So most of our translations are dealing with the symptoms of the lunacy, not the actual word that's there. The New American Standard Bible has actually gone back to lunatic because it literally is a word-for-word -word translation. So what does this word mean? It means someone who's not in their right mind. So it's someone who's not able to interact with reality in a correct way. And so one of the ways that we see this is we see it through a seizure-type event. Some of our translations unhelpfully translate this epilepsy. That's not what it means. That's an understanding of seizures that we have now. That's not what we see here necessarily. So before we go any farther, I want to make sure we understand two things, because people will look at these kind of passages and go, <laughs> those ancients, they're so dumb. They see all these bad things happening, and they think there's a demon behind everyone. Oh, you're so immature. Grow up, it's science, right? Now, first off, we've been through 17 chapters of Matthew, and every time Jesus heals, he doesn't go, let me get the demon out of you, blind guy. Let me get the demon out of you, paralyzed person. Let me get the demon out of you, dead person. He doesn't do that. So the first thing we need to know is that every single physical ailment does not have a demon behind it. That's not what the Bible teaches. It's not what we believe. It's not the truth of it. So that's the first thing, right? So we can say, yep, you're right. There's no demon behind every single ailment. You don't have a demon of diabetes. You don't have a demon of this and that. However, what the Bible does teach is that it's not always just a physical ailment. And we need to get that. Jesus heals people left and right sometimes that have just physical ailments. Other times, he, he heals a physical ailment and gets rid of the demon that's causing it. So we need to expand our understanding. Yes, science says that this is caused by this physical thing, but also sometimes there might be a spiritual. We can't divorce the two. They need to all be together. So let's look at this, this a person's life. We think of it as a child because it says that it's his son. This is actually probably a early 20-year-old, late teens. Mark chapter 9, verse 21 talks about this boy has had it since childhood. So think about this, this boy's life. This boy's life has been one of seizures, and it says in the other, other versions in Luke and in Mark that he's also deaf and that he's not able to speak and that he's having these seizures where he throws himself into the fire and throws himself into the water and can't do anything about it. And so this life that this boy is living and his parents are living is one of constant care for this individual. And it's been a very long time. What a life this kid has lived. And the suffering makes it seem longer because if we're honest, a moment of suffering seems like a lifetime. But here's the thing. This passage is here for us to know one key truth to start with is that there is no one so far gone that Jesus cannot save them. Whether it be physical or spiritual, there is no one that is too far gone for Jesus to save them. Spurgeon writes this, we need to learn the lesson that you cannot be too far gone from Christ. 
Believe that your extremes are only extremes to you and certainly not to him. The highest sin, the deepest despair, together cannot baffle the power of Jesus. If you were between the very jaws of hell, Christ could snatch you forth. If your sins have brought you to the gates of hell and the flames are flashing on your face, if you look to Jesus, he can save you at that moment. If you are brought to him when you are at death's door, there is still eternal mercy for you if you turn to Jesus. So there is no one too far gone that Jesus cannot save. Some of us have watched people we care about walk away from the faith, from the truth, from the Lord. The key thing we need to understand is that no matter how hard their hearts are, they are not too hard for Christ to melt. No matter how bad, no matter what they've done, they can and could be healed. Think about Saul, who we all know as the Apostle Paul. He's on his way to Damascus, and you see him moments before the light from heaven comes. He is not the one who's going to be most, voted most likely to write most of the New Testament. He's got the most likely to kill Christians on his little yearbook picture. Or think about John Newton. You know the story of John Newton? John Newton was a slave trader. He was a slave trader. He was a slave captain. And the Lord grabbed a hold of his heart and turned him into one of the most staunch abolitionists. And you all know the song he wrote. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. John Newton, if you'd have met him as a slave owner and a slave trader, and one who, hey, this slave's weighing me down, let's kill them. That would not have been the person you would have said, oh, you know, I think, I think he's going to be on fire for Jesus real soon. I think he's going to write a song that everybody everywhere knows, whether they're Christian or not. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. There is not a single person too far gone. The second thing we see with this is that suffering is meant to point us to something. When we see this young boy described here and what he's going through, this is a picture. It's, it's, it's a picture for us of what sin does, but his is on the outside. It's, it's visible. Sin always brings misery. And here we can see what it is. When we see suffering, we need to recognize that that suffering is a picture of what sin is doing on the inside. Maybe not to that person who's suffering, but as a whole. So when we see suffering in the world, yes, it should break our hearts. And yes, we should do what we can to help alleviate that. But recognize that that suffering is a picture of what sin is doing to the hearts of people who don't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. We don't have the symptoms of our rebellion to God. Because if we did, we'd be looking around and there'd be a lot of people that look really bad. But instead, sometimes the people that look the best in our world and that are held up as these paragons of something are the most wretched sinners. So the world tricks us. And just because your sin has not come full circle to having external symptoms doesn't mean it's not sin. The self-deception will bring about self-destruction. So remember that this, this suffering that we see is to point us to the fact that sin is reigning now. Because what does Jesus promise? He promises us in Revelation that there will be no more suffering. Why? Because sin has been defeated. See the connection there? And so we need to understand how that works together. All right, let's move on. Verse 16. The disciples could not heal him. 
He says, the father says, I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. Now, Jesus had delegated power to the disciples. We saw this way back in Matthew 10. He says, he brings them all together. He says, hey guys, this is what we're going to do. You're all going to go out and do your own thing. You're going to teach about me. Oh yeah, and by the way, you're going to heal people. You're going to cast out demons. You're going to cleanse lepers, raise the dead. Have fun. Get to it, right? This is what the disciples have been told they have the power to do. However, in this situation, they could not do it. That phrase, they could not, comes from a word that we use all the time. It's the word dynamite. It's a Greek word that means power. And what it says is they have the non-power. That's what the Greek word says. It's a non-power. So it comes across, they had the non-power of healing him. That's like a really bad superhero having a non-power. I have the non-power of flying, not flying, right? But imagine this. So one guy comes up, lays hands on him, and then another, and then another, and then a couple of them, and they try all the different permutations, all nine, and it doesn't happen. The Father has come to these disciples, and they go around, and they can't heal him. Maybe they thought, oh, you know what? Last time I healed, I had my hand up, so I'm going to put my hand up this time. Oh, well, when I did it, I had my hands down, and Then they said, well, this one's too hard. We can't do it. So they stopped trying. Now, why could they not do this? Jesus tells us it's because of their little faith. But what is the external for us? Like if we're sitting there watching over on the side and we're watching, would we see any evidences of their little faith? I mean, we we aren't equipped with our faithometers like we're in a video game, right? When your faith gets to here, it starts flashing and you can do miracles, right? Like blinking Mario, right? There's, there's no faithometer that we can see. So what, what evidences would there have been? Well, Matthew doesn't tell us this, does he? He doesn't say, well, and the disciples were really full of themselves. As a matter of fact, the disciples had a walkout song. It's like, dun 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 You know, it's not that. Was it that some of the disciples were like, we'll let the younger ones do it, but, you know, Andrew, you know, one of the four that was first chosen, he's standing over here going, well, I'll step in because I've got the more power than you guys, right? Is there, is there some, something there? And the answer is Matthew was inspired not to tell us what they did or how they did it wrong because the point here is not, well, if you put your hands this way and you put your hand this way and you, you do, it doesn't, doesn't, that's not it. It's all about the heart condition, and Jesus is going to point that out. He says, it's the little faith that's the problem, not how you did it. Because when it comes to Jesus, nothing is impossible. Actually, as a matter of fact, that word impossible is the opposite of ah, dynamis, or dynamis. It's instead dynamis. He has the power. Nothing is impossible for Christ. So now let's look, and let's, let's walk through the last little bit of this. We see a faithless and twisted generation. Verse 17, Jesus answered, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? So the father comes up and goes, Heal my son. And Jesus goes, Man, this generation is twisted and faithless. Who's he talking to? Well, I think he's talking to the disciples and the crowd. I think he's talking to everybody. Horatius Bonner once said, Unbelief has two things. A good opinion of yourself and a poor opinion of God. And that's what this generation has. This unbelief, this unfaithful generation, they think way too highly of themselves and they think way too lowly of God. That word faithless means to be overwhelmed in unbelief. 
this faithless and twisted generation combo of words we find all over the place in the Old Testament. So in spite of all the evidence they've seen, they still think too lowly of Jesus that he is not the Messiah. It says they are twisted. The word there is the word perverse, which has a different meaning in our culture now, but it means to be opposite of the way you should be, a distorted perception. The question is here, is, is it the disciples are being influenced by the crowds or are the crowds being influenced by the disciples? And I think it's the crowds are influencing the disciples. They're returning to their old way of thinking. No, no, God doesn't work that way. No, God doesn't do this. And oh, by the way, I'm one of the disciples. Jesus is saying the disciples are fitting in well with the crowds around them. They think too high of themselves and too low of God. And these disciples have seen the miracles. They've heard the teachings. They've seen all of it, and yet they still don't have the right knowledge. Look at the second part of verse 17. How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. Now, it's impossible for me to read those without thinking there's some emotion going on here, right? Twice now, he says, how long? How long must I do it? What's the tone here? Well, Matthew doesn't tell us. Neither does Mark and Luke, actually. In Mark's gospel, there's a, a lot of language about emotions when it comes to Christ. But here, I, I see an emotion, and I think it's important that we point out something, is that Jesus felt emotions, because emotions are not sinful in and of themselves. Where they go and what they do in our lives can be sinful. But here we get a glimpse into Jesus' emotional life. I see exasperation, maybe even lamenting that all these people are going to witness miracles. Some of these people are going to be the ones at the crucifixion spitting on him. His own disciples are going to run away, and yet he goes, how much more do I have to do for you to, to believe? There's sorrow. There's maybe even some anger. One writer writes this, the Gospels paint their portraits of Jesus with a kaleidoscope of brilliant emotions. Jesus felt compassion. He was angry, indignant, consumed with zeal. He was troubled. He was greatly distressed, very sorrowful, depressed, deeply moved, grieved, sighed in his spirit, very greatly rejoicing, full of joy, sobbing, groaning, agony, surprised, amazed, he greatly desired and he loved. These are all the adjectives you could imagine of your day. When you check in on your social media and how are you today? Angry. How are you today? Depressed. How are you today? Happy, rejoicing, excited. I mean, these are all words we use, but we still have this view of Jesus like he's Dr. Spock, right? No emotions and just he's not there, but there are emotions. I think the reason why we kind of fear some of the emotions in Jesus is because we misunderstand what we call Christology. Christology is the study of Christ. Christ and ology is the study of. So how do we make sense of this? I like to believe that Jesus doesn't have any emotions because that way he looks more like what I think God's like and less like what man's like. But the gospel writers won't let us do that. They say he's feeling emotions. So what do we do with this? Well, we have two things we need to know. One is that Jesus is 100% human. That means he feels all of the emotions. He gets all the feels, every single one of them. Now, does that mean he's going to lose patience with us? Because when I get exasperated, even if they're with the four people that I love the most in the world, I lose my patience with them. 
So is Jesus going to lose his patience when he's frustrated, when we fail? Is he going to say, enough, I'm done with you all, I'm going over there. Those people are so much more on it. Is this a frustration that we see here? Is this Jesus getting ready to abandon the disciples? We feel this, don't we? We feel the disappointment. We feel the frustration, whether that's actually what God's telling us he's feeling, but we expect him to maybe feel that, and we go, he's going to give up on me. And Jesus' response is, no, no, I'm not going to give up on you. You frustrating failure disciples, I am not giving up on you, because here's the thing, spoiler alert, next week, chapter 17, verses 22 and 23, after all of this disappointment, What does Jesus say next? He says, and I'm going to Jerusalem to die. And who's he dying for? Is he dying for the church down the street that's full of perfect people? Or is he dying for all of us? Is he dying for these disciples? And the answer is, he's dying for them. He says, I'm going to the cross for the frustrating, sinful failures who've been following me and still don't get it. See, so if he's exasperated, it's not changing what he's going to do or what he already did. There's a verse that you all are familiar with. You hear it at weddings, and it really actually applies more to Christ. 1 Corinthians 3, 13, I'm sorry, 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. You know, if you go through 1 Corinthians 13 and take the word love out and put Jesus in there, it matches up perfectly. This is the one we serve. He is the perfect picture of patience and kindness and long-suffering, because not only is he 100% man, but praise the Lord, he's 100% God. And those two together make the perfect person. This, this, This phrase, twisted, faithless generation, he's quoting the Old Testament, and who is he quoting? He's not quoting Moses. He's not quoting Jeremiah or Isaiah. He's quoting God speaking from heaven. This is what God said. How much longer do I need to be with you? He says, I'm going to continue to be with you. See, the good news is is that Jesus is not just a man, and he's not just God. He's both. And what he's showing us here is that he is love. The kind of love that Jesus is showing is the kind of love that God shows. It's called agape. It's a Greek word. It means God-sized love. Okay, that definition doesn't help us at all, right? Because I envision God being way bigger than me. The word agape means to love in spite of, not because of. And this is huge. This is the love that we're called to to feel from God. He loves us in spite of ourselves, not because of. He loves us even though we mess up, even though we could never meet the requirements. He loves us and said, see, that word agape is the gospel, isn't it? He's not exasperated and frustrated and angry, but he is love. This is the love he wants us to have for each other and to extend to spouses and children. And yes, even the guy that pumps your gas at the gas station. This is the kind of love that's supposed to flow into us from God and out into the people around us. This is what we're to be known for. Because anyone can do phileo love, right? Brotherly love. You can love people who are just like you. You can love people that like the same things as you. And our world is really good at the other kind of love, eros, sexual love. That's, a, that's something you can do without having anything to do with God. But agape love is impossible without God. 
This love in spite of ourselves means we can never do anything to lose Christ's love. Not because of means there's nothing I could ever do to earn it. It is grace all the way through. So this is how Jesus' emotions are a good thing. He doesn't take them and sin against us. He takes them and he loves. He takes them and he forgives because that's what he does. That's the gospel. Verse 18, Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed. Remember, not all seizures are caused by demons, but some potentially could be. Now we look at verse 19. God's power flows through faith. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? Okay, they ask him, why, 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 why couldn't we do it? Notice they didn't ask Jesus, why could you do it? They understood that. They understood Jesus had the power to do it. But they wanted to know, why can't we do it? See, here's the thing. The disciples need to catch this. Never once did a disciple cast a demon out. Never once did a disciple heal someone of leprosy. Never once did a disciple raise someone from the dead. Not one of them. Instead, it was the power of God working through the disciples that did it. All they were was the conduit. All they were was the power line. All they were was the means by which God could do it. They didn't do any of it. Just like we talked about last week with Moses. Moses goes up on the hill and he comes down from meeting with God and his face is glowing. He's radiating and the people are like, ah, too bright. We talked about how that's a reflection of God's glory. And then Jesus on the transfiguration, he's the originator of the glory. He's glowing of his own accord, not a reflection. See, that's what we are, we are when miracles are being worked, when power is flowing through us. It's not as if the disciples could stand up and go, because I'm a disciple, boom. No, it's because I have Jesus Christ and he has me, and that's how the power flows. This, I mean, the disciples, what, what they did was they were like, you know, I've lived in this house for 18 years. We've never, you know, we've had a couple times of a little bit less power, but most of those 18 years we've had power. I think we just cut off the power lines. I mean, we're good. The power can come from our own house, right? The disciples had decided that they were the reason why the power was showing up. They had forgotten that it was the one who delegated them the power that was doing the healing. See, they had confidence. It wasn't that they were, you know, they'd had, they were unconfident. No, they had the confidence because they were surprised when they couldn't do it. But they had forgotten that God is the object of their confidence, not themselves, not even their past. And this is where it hits for us because God's going to use us in things and we can look into our past and say, look at what God did. Well, clearly I'm fine now. No, see, the things in our past are meant for us to go, look what God did. Oh, I need more God now. Oh, I need to tap into him even more now. It's not, I mean, yes, he's faithful, and yes, he's true, he did all this stuff, but it's not, look at all this stuff that I did, God did it through me, but I did it, so I can do this. So you've disconnected yourself from your power source. Christ is preparing these men for when he's not there. This is a part of their, 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 their training Spurgeon says, this was the part of the training of the 12. They are in college now, and Christ is their tutor. This is where their own weakness shall be driven from them back into divine strength. 
And just like that, we shall learn to trust, not in ourselves, not in man, not in what God's already done, but to trust God with who he is right now, confidently moving forward. And Jesus lays this out, verse 20. He said to them, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, move to here, from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Now, this moving of a mountain, every single commentator says it's a metaphor, but let's just be honest, it's a metaphor, but could God do that? Absolutely. Would we ever want to move a mountain? It's like, eh, I don't think that, you know, that Mount Rainier should be there. Let's move it over here. I don't know that that's in God's plan, but the idea here is that something that is impossible with man is possible with God if it's a part of his plan. And there are some of you in this room that can testify to that. The diagnosis says this. The money looks like it's going to run out here. This situation should have ended in this bad outcome. And you can look through those and you can say, the Lord did that. There's no other explanation. With only a very little faith, the disciples could have exercised this demon. There's no spiritual elite status. It's the God that is the one we need. So what is faith? This is a word that gets used all the time. And there's all sorts of weird ways that our culture uses it. I want to give you a definition that I came across that I think is pretty powerful. But first, I have to introduce you to somebody. His name is John Patton. John Patton was a missionary. Uh, before studying theology and medicine, he served in Glasgow in a mission in the city while he was studying. Soon as he graduated, he was ordained. That day, got on a boat and sailed to the middle of the South Pacific to a place called Vanuatu. Three months after arriving there, his wife died, his young wife. They'd been married just for a few, few years. Followed by his five-week-old son. For three years, Patton labored there among the hostile Indian uh, inhabitants, ignoring their threats, seeking to make Christ known. But finally, he hit a tipping point, and he escaped with his life, only to return and work there for another 15 years. So that's kind of his story. If you want more of it, subscribe to the Monday Morning Gleanings that come out tomorrow, and I gave you a little biography of him. It's about 25, 30 pages long. It's a really good read. But Patton was at home. John Patton was working at home. He was translating the Bible into the Vanuatu language, and he was struggling because he was translating the book of John, and he was trying to figure out how to say believe in or trust in, like it says in John 1.12 where it says, trust in the Lord. He goes, how can I translate this? See, the island on which he was working was full of cannibals. And they, on a regular basis, ate each other. So the language that he's trying to translate the word trust in has no word for trust. Because nobody trusts anybody. So there's no word for that. So he pulls in one of his native friends and he sits down on his chair and says, what am I doing? And he goes, you're sitting on your chair. He goes, okay, how about if I put both my legs up? Now what am I doing? And the native, in, the native, native person says, you are, to, you are leaning your whole weight upon it. And so he used this verb, which means to lean your whole weight upon, as his word for faith, for trust, for believing. And this is what it means to have faith. It's to lean your whole weight on them. Like when you pick up a child and take them back to their bed after they came into your room and they are like a sack of potatoes. The whole weight is on you, not just a little. 
but the whole thing. See, the opposite of this, of putting none of the weight onto God, this idea of unbelief, this is a big deal because faith is the key. We are at war with the ruler of this world and unbelief, the opposite of faith, is a way to sure failure. Our faith must be guarded. We must constantly be checking the connection. Do my power lines of faith reach back to God? Is it where it should be? Is it getting frayed? Is it disconnected? Have I disconnected it? Do I need more power? We are to constantly look at and challenge our faith. J.C. Ryle says, if we once let our faith languish and decay, all our graces will languish with it. Courage, patience, long-suffering, hope will all soon wither and dwindle away. Faith is the root in which they all depend. Remember the Israelites, they come up to the Red Sea and they go, it's hopeless. And Moses, God's power in Moses has them part the sea and they walk across. Oh man, amazing, we have faith. And then they get into the wilderness and something small happens and they go, oh, what are we going to do? Did God change? No. What happened was their faith became frayed. They were not checking the connection. They were not making sure that it was still tapped into God. Instead, they let it fray. They started to believe that they had done it or that they were extra special and they were not trusting in the Lord. Hebrews 3.19 says they were not able to enter into the promised land because of their unbelief. The disciples, of course, were not devoid of faith. It was that their faith was not functioning properly. If you're in the room here today and you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you have faith. But if, but if it's not a faith that is alive and vibrant, it has nothing to do with your not having faith. It has to do with where is it connected? Is it where it should be? Is it functioning properly? It's amazing that, that God would send his son and that his son would enter into us. It's a very amazing thing. Let's look at a quick little progression in the book of Matthew. So we've seen this phrase, little faith, over and over again. This is the fifth time in Matthew. He's going to use it one more time later. But so far he's used it. And each time, he's pointed out what this means. And I want us to see this because it'll explain what we are seeing here. So let's go back to Matthew chapter 6. Jesus says, But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So what were they worrying about here? This is the Sermon on the Mount. What were they worrying about? They were worrying about food and drink. Now, did they currently not have food and drink? No, they had it. They had food and drink here, but what they were worrying about was what they were going to do next, the thing that wasn't in their hands at that moment. They were like, okay, God, um, you know, Jesus, we're, we're hanging out here. Are we going to swing by a McDonald's? What, what's the plan? Like, how are we going to get more food? Because uh, Jesus is saying, you have little faith. I gave you this food. I'll give you the next one. Matthew 8, 26, they're in the storm. And Jesus said to them, why were you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. Same thing here. Every single one of these disciples, if you'd have asked them on dry land or on the boat before the waves, they'd have said, what? Yeah, we have faith in God. We trust him. But as soon as the waves began, as soon as the, the storm hit, their faith dried up. They went into despair. When faith stops, despair begins. 
When faith stops, worry begins. When faith stops, doubt begins. Matthew 14. Now it's Peter's turn. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Remember, Peter walks on the water until he doesn't. He believed in Jesus until he saw the waves and the wind. He knew there was no human way to conquer the problem, so he went, I can't do this. There's no way that we can do this, forgetting that Jesus is standing right there, thinking there was no way out when there was. And then the last one we saw just a couple of weeks ago, Matthew 16, 8. This is when the disciples have come wondering how they're going to feed the multitude. And Jesus says, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves that fact that we have no bread? See, again, the disciples can't imagine how Jesus is going to do this. They're only discussing what's right in front of them. So here's the connection with all four of these and the one today. And you guys will will get this. All of these incidents tell us what little faith is. Little faith is the kind of faith that believes in God only when I have the thing in my hand that I think I need. That's it. Well, as long as I have this, as long as you've met me halfway, God, and you've given me this thing that I need, I can trust in you. But great faith is when you go, huh, I got nothing. I'm going to trust you, Lord. Because see, that's the way the Lord works. The Lord doesn't give us this little bit and say, see, you can trust me. He says, no, you can trust me. And the great faith is the one that goes, I don't know how you're going to do it, Lord, but I trust you. I believe you without anything in my hands. I believe you in the middle of the storm. I believe God when it's howling wind. I believe God when there's nothing in the cupboard. I believe God, though I don't have clothing, I believe God. That's the great faith. And see, Jesus is ready to turn these these disciples loose. He's not going to send them out alone. After the resurrection, he is going to send the Holy Spirit to help them. And they're going to do amazing things, and they're going to still be tapped into Jesus through the faith. But as they're walking with Jesus, the tests only get harder. One of the things as you read through the Gospel of Matthew, some of the earliest things are just, hey, come follow me. Then it's, hey, do this thing. And hey, yeah, you got to do this. And it just keeps getting harder. Because the greatest test is when they stand before the Lord at the end. And so it's harder and harder tests to grow them stronger and stronger. It's kind of like weightlifting. You start off, right? You've never lifted weights in your life. And you start doing some lifting and all of a sudden, poof, you've got some muscles. I love it when a teenager does that. It's pretty epic to see the muscles growing. But... If you want to get real strong, you got to keep going harder, and you got to keep going longer. And yes, someone who has big muscles goes in there, and they want to get bigger, it's going to require a ton more work to see the same kind of change in someone who's never done it. And this is the maturity that we're seeing in these disciples. The Lord is taking them and making things a little bit harder, a little bit longer, a little bit more time before he does it. So that that way, when he is not there and they can't see him, they know he is still at work. So now, how does mustard seeds fit into all of this? How does a mustard seed? Well, if you remember back when we talked about mustard seed, the point is not the smallness. That's just a part of the story. That's just a part of it. It's to be encouraging because it's so small. The point is that a mustard seed does not stay small. 
a mustard seed grows. And not just grows into a little weed, right? It grows into a gigantic bush, if you remember the story earlier we were talking about. It starts small, but it grows. And this is what they're doing, what Jesus is doing with these disciples. It starts small. It's not even looking like it's growing, but he's going, oh no, it's growing. And it keeps growing, and it keeps growing, and it changes the world as we know it. Now, some of you might say, all right, I get that. I get that. You know, growing faith, that's great. You're a pastor. You're supposed to encourage us to do that. But I'm fine with my mustard-sized faith. It's going to get me into heaven. It's not going to rock the world. It's not going to reshape things. I'm fine with it. But I want to show you, not only is that just kind of ridiculous, you're also missing out on some amazing things. So let's, we'll use our analogy one more time. Beat a dead horse, right? Use our analogy one more time. We'll go back in time, and you're living in a house that's just had electricity given to your house. Cool, right? You can you could power a light bulb for two hours a day. Yes, awesome. You're thinking, this is great. I can stay up for hours reading books people give me. I can stay up and do my taxes. I don't want to do that. This is a huge upgrade, right? No more candles. It's just a light bulb. Awesome. A few weeks later, you get a knock on the door. Hey, uh, we're upgrading your electrical service. Uh, We'd like to give you more energy. Oh, no, no. No, I'm good with my two hours of light. It's great. I I, I have no complaints. It's awesome. Okay? A few weeks later. Hey, uh, all your neighbors have upgraded. We'd like to upgrade you to some new, some new power. Oh, no, no, that's fine. As your neighbors are heating their house all winter, as your neighbors are having light anytime they want it, as your neighbors are cooking over an electric item, as your neighbors, as your neighbors, how ridiculous would it be to still be that person today who's got the house with a little teeny cord going in that says, hey, I got two hours of electricity. This is awesome. We look at that and we go, you're missing out on so much. See, the Lord wants to increase our faith. He doesn't want to increase our faith because he needs us to do his work. He can do it all on his own. He was great. He was doing his work before you ever were born. So why does he want this so much for us? He wants it because when we are tapped into him with faith, we know we're his. We know whose we belong to. We know the family in which we are a part of. We call that assurance. If you have that little scrawny power line coming in, and that's your faith, and you're hoping that that light turns on for the two hours, I hope. But if you've got that three-phase power that's coming into your house, you are powering everything. You're blowing fuses. You got so much power. You know the power is there. That's what the Lord wants for us. He wants us to know He's there. He wants us to do amazing things. Does that mean we're going to go and we're going to raise the dead and cast out demons? Well, praise be to God if He tells you to do that. Does that mean I can claim these verses and just go be a celebrity somewhere? No. It's to follow God and know Him more greatly and to know that He is your God. Nothing is impossible with God. So what should the disciples have done in this situation? What should they have done? When the first man doesn't heal, and the second, and the third, all the way through nine, what they should have done was they should have kept praying, which there's no evidence that they did that. 
They should have kept trusting, which it's clear evidence they probably weren't doing that, and keep believing until the persistent prayers broke through and reached the point that the Lord wanted them to be at. See, the disciples, were the reason why this, this man and his son was put in front of them was to grow their faith, was to upgrade their faith. But they went, oh, I guess it doesn't work anymore. Wore off. Okay. Instead, they're to push through. Now, this is not saying we bang on the heaven's door and we say, Lord, you have to do this. No, instead, it's submitting to the fact that if the Lord has told you to do something and you are banging your head against it over and over and over again, it's not that he's not paying attention. It's not that he doesn't care. It's that he wants to grow something in you that could never be grown unless you had that friction. Remember that weightlifting? You have to break your muscles in order to grow them. We have to be broken so that we can trust the Lord because our idol of self, our idol of our self-reliance is so big. So we need to be ones who lean our whole weight upon God. This is the goal. Whether it takes nine times or 99 times, we're to admit that we cannot do it. We're to ask the Lord for help. We're to trust in his promises and then get busy doing what he's told us to do. The disciples didn't do this. They were leaning their whole weight on themselves. And surprise, it didn't work. So where are we putting our faith? Where are they putting their faith? I'll ask the worship team to come on up as we're finishing up here. More important than having faith is what you have your faith in. The connection to the object of our faith is what matters. Jesus tells his disciples that they don't need giant faith, tiny faith will do, but it has to be faith tapped in to the Lord. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Instead, lean your whole weight upon God whose Son was sent for you different passage this week, but it's the same conclusion. Will you trust this God? Will you lean your whole weight on this God? That's what it means to have faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you that we get to study your word. Lord, thank you that you are a God that makes the mighty Columbia River and all the rivers combined look impotent by comparison. You are so powerful, and you've worked mighty miracles and wondrous deeds, but even more than that, Lord, you have brought souls that are dead in their sins back to life, and you want to assure us of that through our faith. So, Lord, I pray that you would strengthen our faith, and Lord, if you, if you so choose for us to work miracles, praise you. If all you're doing is to assure us that we are yours, we praise you. Lord, help us to trust. Help our unbelief. We want to believe, Lord. We want to lean our whole weight on you. Help us to do that better. In Jesus' name, amen.